Hey, welcome to the first episode ever of New to the Table, a podcast produced by SheSources. This show is for early career women and gender nonconforming creatives who work in the entertainment industry and want to sit behind the table. Our conversations on the podcast will be with guests who are already doing that, which will help make your creative career journey feel more possible to you. I always want you to walk away from one of our podcast episodes feeling one of two things, or both of these things, if we're doing a really great job, inspired or guided. I want you to feel like you learned something new, or you just have that like click, that snap of inspiration from listening to one of the guests. I'm going to introduce myself real quick. I'm your host, Emma Stern. I'm also the founder of SheSources, and my pronouns are she, her. And this show is going to have some guest hosts from the SheSources team as well, and I can't wait for you to meet them when they come on. There are so many podcasts out there right now, and I just want to take a minute to thank you for landing at ours. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce the premier guest of New to the Table, Macy Schmidt. I want to be completely honest in the spirit of full transparency, This conversation that you're about to hear with Macy was actually recorded in 2022 over Zoom. But then life happens, time passes, we take a step back from things, I had to take a step back from SheSources for a moment because of a lot of things happening in my own life. Now that SheSources has relaunched in September 2023, I am so excited to release this conversation with Macy. I was also really nervous when I went back to listen to the conversation that it would feel dated because it really feels to me like the theater landscape has been rapidly changing ever since we've been coming out of the Broadway shutdown. So when I went back to listen to the episode, I was really nervous, and then I wasn't. I was reminded of how much I loved my conversation with Macy. I thought she was really genuine and honest and passionate. It was really inspiring to meet somebody who, on her own, creating change within the theater industry. She's giving work to a lot of people that we don't see in the pits of Broadway, in the music sector of the musical theater industry, single-handedly with the Broadway Sinfonetta, which she's the CEO of. It's also what landed her on the Forbes 30 under 30 music list last year in 2022. So she's got like a lot of these titles already, and she's a part of the changing theater landscape in a really great and inspiring way. And she's somebody who goes after what she wants. And I'm not going to say that she goes after in a fearless way because fearless as a word, not as the Taylor Swift album, which is a great album, but fearless as a word is kind of intimidating to me because I'm a person who has a lot of fear, if I'm being completely honest, and I worry a lot about things and I get nervous about things all the time. But what's really inspiring to me as a person like that is when I see somebody who clearly also has those nerves and worries and feels imposter syndrome which you'll see in my conversation with Macy, but still goes after what they want anyway. That's something that's really helpful for me to hear. So if you're also similar to that, then I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. And if you don't have that, then please email me and teach me your ways of how you don't have any fears. Hopefully I don't get a lot of emails or else I'm going to feel like I'm the odd man out on this and I know I'm not. So without further ado, I want to start my conversation with Macy and for a moment, just bear with me. Pretend like you're sitting down to meet Macy and I in a cozy coffee shop, the cozy coffee shop of your dreams, even though we're clearly on the phone in the conversation, but you know, just go with it for a second. Use your imagination. I'm going to play you an audio transition and everything to help your imagination and transition into pretending like you're sitting at the table at a coffee shop with Macy and I. Please enjoy.
how do you identify yourself as a creative? Like when people ask you, what do you do? What do you tell them? Oh boy. It, uh, these days it depends who's asking. I know that sounds ridiculous, but like, no, I feel like it, that, that, that answer has evolved so much. I feel like people who work in the music side of theater things often have a string of like five or six hyphenates that have to do with that world independent. You place one at the front of the list, depending on who's asking. At these days, I would say I am an orchestrator and music director, founder of the Broadway Sinfonietta, and I've only recently started becoming less terrified of the word producer in the context of what I do with the Sinfonietta, and I, I'm actually executive producing some TV and media projects right now, but I've only recently started becoming less terrified of that word because I feel massive clouds of imposter syndrome with that word as a music person, and so now I guess I would say orchestrator and music director, founder, producer. So cool. Yeah, I got the, I got the, the out loud. <laughs> Say it out loud. Why not? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's like I, 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 there was a time where I had imposter syndrome as some of those other titles. And now yeah. I don't. There's like a new thing to have imposter syndrome about. <laughs> totally understand. Imposter syndrome will follow me around forever. It's all yeah. titles are weird. But the producer's there <laughs> and it's not an imposter <laughs> title at all. Why do you like what you do? Oh, man. That's another answer that's like really evolved. I think that. If you'd asked me that question a few years ago, I would have talked about how much I love music and how I feel so lucky that the thing I love doing is also what I do for a living. I probably would have said something about the music, about the magic of music making. But I think now I would actually say, you know, I started the Symphonietta during a pandemic and the biggest aspect of the Symphonietta is employing other people. Mm. My favorite part of working with the Symphonietta is getting to connect work and people who I think deserve work and don't really get enough of it all the time so I would say partially it's getting to make music for a living like it's like stupid that I get to say that and then the other part is being able to look at the ledger at the end of 2021 and see during a pandemic how much income we were able to funnel to women and women of color musicians and that that has been something that I really really love doing that I didn't know I would love so much before there was a pandemic and a reason to think about those things yeah. Oh, that's so, I mean, congrats. That's amazing to hear. And it's so inspiring to watch you just create the opportunity for so many people, for yourself and for so many others. Okay. This is the question. <laughs> the one okay, that I asked okay. Anne, how did you get here? Like what were the twists and the turns that you didn't expect? The things that you said okay. yes to, the things that you said no to, and the answer can never be too long. I ask you this because people who are looking at where you are now they just want to know the path you took because it'll make yeah. their path seem more totally. real. Okay, I'll try to boil this down. I had a pretty non-traditional path as anybody who calls themselves a professional musician because I did not take music lessons as a kid. I didn't take piano lessons as a kid. I, you know, I play piano professionally now on a daily basis. I didn't lay fingers on a piano until I was 15, probably 16. Oh my gosh. I think that taking piano lessons as a kid is something like everyone does as expensive babysitting and they quit when they're 10. Yeah, I don't think my parents thought that would necessarily stick with me. And I got into high school and became really interested and obsessed with the music side of things. So in particular, and this is also kind of an answer to the question about what I love most about what I do, I latched on really early to music theory and not performance. I absolutely love that. Like I had a choir teacher named Miss um, Martin at my high school who kind of helped me understand the relationship between the notes on the page and what you sing. And I'm like, oh, every song we hear on the radio could be boiled down into a piece of paper. And any piece of paper 
can be used to make a song we hear on the radio. Like, that's so wild. The, like, the fact that like, sounds are little black dots on paper really thrilled me. Mm. And so I became obsessed with that. I had a theater program at my school that I've actually only recently started talking openly in the press about the fact that it was like really harmful and abusive and run by women who did not know how to make an inclusive department that fostered what high school theater is supposed to be. Yeah. I had the opportunity last month to go speak at and adjudicate at junior theater festival in Atlanta and it's a be around this like magical high school kids making theater in a healthy way I realized so much more as, as an adult speaking at those kinds of conferences how much I did not have that these were just drama teachers who were racist and sexist and many terrible things God, and sorry. so I went to college and I decided to study actually I don't usually tell people this but it's part of the arc I went to college on an opera scholarship wow because I needed a scholarship to go to college and they don't offer a music theory scholarship because if you're not performing to earn the school money, there's no scholarship for you. You have to be doing something that outwardly earns the school money. Mm. And I did it for like a semester and immediately switched my major to music theory. It was like, not, <laughs> but got, got to keep that scholarship. Good. Um, I went off to college and I was like, all right, classical music, like this, this is the thing. I'm done with musical theater. Those people are crazy. Like my high school experience, like yeah. tainted me so like, I want nothing to do with those crazy people. And then they were doing a production of In the Heights at the university theater department. And the student directors approached me. And honestly, I think they thought I was Latino, which isn't a common mistake. And they were like, well, you play piano and you must be qualified to music director production of In the Heights. I was like, none of those things are true, but that's fine. I didn't really know what music directing was because at my school, students weren't allowed to do that. Adults did all the jobs for you except being an actor. So all I knew of theater was you can be in the play and be abused by your drama teachers, or you can leave all these crazy people. <laughs> and so it was all these roles were being done by students. There was a student production manager, a student costume designer, student music director, all, all of this. Was I qualified at that moment in time to be music directing this production? No, but I, <laughs> I did it and it really unlocked a, a love. And I see now that, that it unlocked things about it that I loved. Where I was like, okay, the way theater is made here, I like this. Mm. And it's taken me a whole career to discover that my high school theater experience was the outlier and not the norm. So I, I kept doing that. But really, the, the most pivotal moment was as soon as this was spring semester of my freshman year, I'm a music director in the Heights. The day that, that show closed, April of freshman year, I was like, well, I want to move to New York and do this. <laughs> and I apply. I, I knew that I, my way in was not going to be as a musician. My way in was going to be as an admin. And I'm very type A. I'm very organized. And I was like, I want to work on Broadway. I grew up loving cast albums. And I feel like I've reconnection to this thing that the poor educators kind of stomped the love out of me of mm. and I was like oh, I'm gonna move to New York I'm gonna work on Broadway I don't really know what I'm gonna do I don't really care what I'm gonna do but I'm just gonna get an internship mm -hmm. I applied to truly hundreds and hundreds yeah. of internships I re realized then it's so hard when you don't know people when everyone doesn't know your name I actually asked well I said this in an article recently too and now I'm like oh my god all these educators are gonna see this but I'm fine with that I'm fine with that okay the truth um, uh, I asked, uh, educators at, in the theater department at my university to write me recommendation letters for these New York internships and the head of the theater department, instead of agreeing to write me a letter was like, you know, just try to steer me away from doing it as a freshman in New York. And so, well, why don't we call up the local Hippodrome theater in Gainesville and get you an internship there? Mm. And I was like, no, I think I know what I want to do. <laughs> and I cold emailed people, tried to make connections, introduce myself. Jennifer Tepper was the person to be like, sure, I'll give you a way to come move here and some money for working to do it. And, you know, it was wow. 54 Below was one of the, at the time, was like one of the only paid at all internships that was on the market. I mean, I know I know, like graduating out of that. Yeah. 
and it was like hundred dollars a week. It was like the only paid internship. So I did that and moved to the city. And the beautiful thing about 54 Below is you meet 16 music directors a week because they do 16 shows a week. And I started seeing people doing what I was doing in a professional way. Gradually became like someone's running late for soundcheck. Can you go pop down and play this? And like kind of filtered into that way. And then by the end of the summer, I knew a lot of people. I'd gone out of my way to meet a lot of people. I had a few mentors in music directing and they started pulling me into this new thing called music assisting. And I was like, what is music assisting? And then all of a sudden I was in these fancy Broadway rooms with really high level productions as a music assistant. I didn't even know what that role was. Wow. And there was transcription and copy work and all these things. And I was like, oh, like this is the thing that's the relationship to, of the notes to the sound of the page, the music. This is a job. And that my brain just exploded. But this thing that I loved that no one told me was a job is not only a job, but like kind of a really well-paid job in yeah. the scope of your ecosystem. And a very so, necessary one as well. Like, yeah. yeah. I was like, oh my God, it's, no one told me when I was in high school that like, this thing that I love that I was nearly obsessed with there's an actual role in transcription that does that all the time that's fairly well paid so I started assisting and it got dicey with school I made the decision that summer to like not really go back to school I ended up doing a bunch of online classes and going back and forth a little bit and Mm. but I never really like fully I I was in no one in New York thought that I was still technically enrolled in school and no one in school knew why I was only in town two or three days a week. And so every weekend for four days, I was flying to New York and like maintaining a career, working on projects. I felt like Hannah Montana that entire season of my life. (laughs) Um, And I built up in that time. There's something really special, special and simultaneously problematic about Mm -hmm. being this age where you're young and new and cute enough to ask fancy people if you can shadow them and they aren't threatened by you because Mm. you have no credits, you have no experience. You're not a threat to them in any way. Yeah. And the, more, the deeper you get into that, the less people keep letting you do it, which yeah. has its own like lane of problematicness. I had a male orchestration mentor who really taught me the craft. And I've always been interested in it, but orchestration is a thing that like is not in a, for, for Broadway, for musical theater, that is not in a textbook. It's not in a class you can take in college. There are a few music conservatories starting to offer yeah. stuff like that, but it's a craft that is passed down through mentorship. And I'm actually now part of a professional arrangers and orchestrators guild where I can trace the lineages of mentorship from the greats in orchestration that are part of this guild. There are, there's actually a book called The Sound of Broadway Music that's written, traces all the mentor relationships of all of these white men who mentor yeah. each other because how, who do we tend to mentor? We tend to mentor people who look like us, who remind us of ourselves. Yeah. And so I had a male orchestration mentor who I don't think I would have known where to even look to get that kind of knowledge without somebody sitting down and teaching it to me. Mm. And that's hard and that's rare. I, I realized I, I was in a really rare situation and in some ways problematic situation to be receiving that particular breed of mentorship. And mm-hmm. I think that the things that are expected of young women to be mentored by older men to learn a craft is something that should be discussed much more. Mm-hmm. But I did learn so much from this and it, you know, it equipped me with some skills I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I became really dazzled by orchestration. I wanted to be doing that. And so I, I kind of decided I was less interested in music directing. This was a problem because there are so many music directing jobs for young, early career music directors. Every project in development needs an MD. And a first table read needs someone at the piano teaching yeah. vocals to people. By the time you're hiring an orchestrator, your project probably has millions of dollars in the bank and is moving to Broadway. And you're going to hire somebody with a bunch of Tonys for doing that work. Mm. In pivoting to that, I really leaned into music assisting because I felt like being in the score and working with the orchestrator was the way to do that. When I worked on Tina on Broadway, I was working on Aida at Disney when the pandemic shut down. And I was like, I'm just going to kind of try to leave playing and kind of be in the score more and do this. And as I would build up a repertoire of charts, I 
something I should say is I, I was really influenced by big orchestral music of the classic Disney era. I always say mm. the piece of music that made me discover I wanted to be, even subconsciously, in an arranger orchestrator is the Wishes Fireworks Show at the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, I think I, I saw this in an yeah. interview you did I, as well. <laughs> I say it all the time because it's like, Disney sounds like the universal language. Even as a young kid, you hear those songs presented in a different way and you're like, oh, I know this song, but it sounds a little bit different. I, I felt aware. I was like, oh, well, this isn't how part of your world sounds in the movie. Yeah. That's always the kind of music that I've wanted to do. And I realized kind of when the pandemic happened, I'm working on these shows, working on Tina, working on Aida, pandemic shuts down everything. And months pass, I'm like kind of waiting for the world to pick up and for me to continue music assisting. And mm-hmm. I had a lot, lot of trouble getting, I got a lot of orchestration jobs that were like a rhythm combo thing. Or I also realized during the pandemic when conversations in June about George Floyd's murder really changed the dialogue of the theater landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a while to realize like, oh, as a um, brown but not black woman, I kind of was not putting myself in the shoes of any of the conversations that were happening. I, did, I guess I didn't feel like I received some the discrimination to the scale of like what I was hearing in those conversations. And I wasn't really putting myself in, in that position. To bring me to this moment, like a combination of things happened during the pandemic that was really impactful. One is that, you know, as an assistant, I was really in a hamster wheel working on projects that were for someone else's vision. And when you're in that hamster wheel, you don't have any creative bandwidth to think about what you want to say or what you want to do. It's not even like space in your brain because you're running on a hamster wheel to help someone else's project. Yeah. In those conversations following the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and, and the Black Lives Matter conversation, all of these experiences that I'd had and experiences that I'd, I'd seen fellow women of color have and just the general lack of women of color in spaces that I work in, all of it just kind of came together and was in my mind all the time. You know, in the music world, I felt like there was a lot of advocacy happening for women musicians at the time before the pandemic. And when you look at that movement, all of the leaders and key names and faces of that movement are white women. Yeah. And then I also felt like there was kind of becoming a lot of progress for players of color in that space. And when you looked at that movement, all of the key players and names and faces were men of color. Mm-hmm. And I was not seeing any women of color in the spaces that I was working at all. And I was just like, that that feels wrong. Mm-hmm. The Broadway Sinfonietta was something that was all the intersection of all these things allowed me to have the creative bandwidth to think about what do I want to say and what do I want to do. And I originally conceived of it as a one-off video. I'd had this orchestration in the vault that I wrote that was in the style that I like. It was big, splashy, traditionally white Broadway music style. And mm. I wanted to find women of color I didn't already know. I watched hundreds of hours of YouTube footage of Harlem School of the Arts recital videos, trying to find oh people, that, people that I didn't have any mutual friends with. There are many players that I hired for that video. I still work with that I had mutual friends with, but it was essential to me to not call friends of friends because that's like a problem. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And, and I just cold emailed some producers, some women producers in the Broadway landscape who I'd noticed in one way or another being vocal about wanting to make the change in some way. I cold emailed Daryl Roth and Janice Che. And I was like, I want to do this. What do you think? I need financial support. Mm. I can't actually give you a tax donation because I'm not a not-for-profit. And this isn't actually an investment. But do you want to support this? And they both said yes. Wow. We filmed that video launched it and I was just really taken aback by the support and the the way that it, it snowballed I mean it premiered on CBS Sunday morning with showing the video in full um it got you know some really uh, still hard to process like national press coverage mm-hmm. and then I started being asked about what the orchestra was doing next and it became an official ongoing thing we did a a video that was sponsored by Matt Cosmetics for Black History Month a few months later. We did Ratatouille, all, all of that anyways. Yeah. 
the, and the thing about the orchestra is, you know, I'm getting to orchestrate charts in my own voice. Usually I get to choose what song it is and range it and oversee the musical vision of that and have it be for a large instrumentation and give jobs to women of color. All of a sudden I felt like it was in my purpose. All the things that I love and I care about have come together for this to exist. Since then it's grown. I like, like I said in your question about roles and titles, there's a stigma when your role in the Broadway ecosystem is like creative craft that in order to be the, the best, in order to be like A-list at your craft, that's the only thing you do. Yeah. But I, I feel such a stigma against calling yourself multiple things. Once I decided I want to be an orchestrator, I was like, okay, in order to be taken seriously by the orchestrator guys, I have to only do this. Mm. It's only been very recently now that I worked on Ratatouille. From that, I'm working on an original musical being developed in partnership with TikTok as an executive producer. That oh led to gosh. another executive producer job, which has led to another executive producer job. And it's being a creative consultant in how to craft something musical overall. And then I get to hire the Sinfonietta and the orchestra to have all women make the music of that project. Oh, and that's amazing. It's really, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm having a great time with it. So the Sinfonietta happens. The Forbes list comes out and that happens. The music list in all the years that Forbes 30 Under 30 has existed, has been very commercial. It's been pop stars and rappers and agents. And for something like a Broadway orchestra to be on that list was really validating and really expanded the opportunities for that. I've been meeting so many people outside of my field and feeling so inspired by them. I went to this seduction dinner and I've never heard the word scaling so many times in my entire life. Everyone's like, what are you doing to scale? What are you doing to scale the orchestra? <sighs> I don't know. It's an orchestra. Like, what do you want <laughs> But it really like planted something in my mind last year where I was like, wow, outside of our industry, people are thinking about how they can grow things to a global scale. Why why have I not even been thinking about that? And so, you know, where I am now is we're expanding Symphonetta in a bunch of ways. We're expanding to different cities and having a few different Symphonettas. I realized we have been producing work. We work with brands who say, give us this deliverable. Instead of just giving them musicians, we're hiring videographers and mixers and a whole team of people and creatively conceiving of and handing in a deliverable and so we're separating out a productions arm of the company oh um, so cool yeah that's kind of where, where we are now so now I'm like trying to find a way to balance loving I, I having the community of, of Forbes under 30 has helped me feel a little bit less imposter syndrome in the aspects of this that are being a CEO of a company or are employing people and growing scaling an idea and the business side of it which I love and then also feeling that reverse imposter syndrome in the theater community of, well, in order to be truly excellent at this craft, this is all you do. Yeah. That was really long-winded, but that's to now. No, it's not long-winded. I mean, <laughs> first off, congrats on Forbes 30 into 30. Yeah. That is so exciting. And that opens so many doors for you. And I think there's something that you said in there about how, especially in the theater industry, the whole like, being a multi-hyphenate is not as cool. It's funny because I think like even in the film industry, it's a little cooler. But like in the theater industry, you're a music director, you're an orchestrator, you're an actor, you're a choreographer, you're a director. You're only one of these things. Yeah. Then you saying people at the 30 under 30 asking you, what's your scale? Like, are you going global? Like, how do you get bigger? Do you ever think about how in New York theater is just New York and just Broadway sometimes? And that's not a bad yeah. thing, but that's also why sometimes we don't think in that way. We're thinking of, we're thinking of a show 
in a handful of theaters in one part of town being like the end-all be-all ceiling to how successful we can be. And I truly, when I moved to New York, I was like, oh my God, my absolute peak dream is to work on a Broadway show. So it's to be sustained financially by working on Broadway. I was like, there's nothing in the world higher than that. Yeah. I know we know the sensation of reaching a dream and then creating a new one and, and never being satisfied in that way. But it's like, it, yes, working on Broadway is as magical as I thought it would be. And I feel so lucky to get to do that. And I realized in meeting all these people who are outside of the, the arts community, I was like, I don't remember the last time I, I had conversations with people who don't do what I do, who, who don't work in my bubble. I've, mm-hmm. We've been working in a vacuum in a, in, in a, a way. Oh my God, there's so much more out there. And, it, and it's not as, as simple and cliche as theater making the jump to Hollywood. It's just generally like how to like scale a, grow a creative business. There's so so much out there and I think the ceiling of what is possible is so much higher than I maybe was aware that it was or maybe I perceived it to be yeah 100% feels like a bubble especially just also personally having gone to school in New York and it feels so in front of my face being like after you graduate you must end up in these buildings and it took me a moment after I graduated to be like theater happens everywhere um I think the pandemic yeah. shows too that like theater isn't only made on stage right like, yeah you know something that I my favorite thing about uh working on Ratatouille is that the analytics of how many people watched Ratatouille that one night or three night however many nights yeah. it aired somebody did the math and said something that would be like a year of a full house at the Gershwin not that many people would have watched it it's oh like you know this, this project I'm working on with TikTok just the the scope of how many people can consume something we saw it with many cliche examples right we saw with Hamilton on Disney plus the ways of making theater and not even just digital or virtual theater but just the ways of infusing theater into the cultural zeitgeist of the pop culture into what's being created in like the mainstream we're in the golden age of the movie musical now apparently the tv musical all of that there's just so many more ways to inject theater outside of New York theater industry bubble yeah zeitgeist that I was kind of blocking myself off to I think have you ever experienced disrespect in this industry along your journey? How did you deal with it? And looking back, do you wish you dealt with it differently at all? That's a wonderful question. I have two answers. The answer is yes. Yes, I've dealt with yeah. disrespect in this industry. But of course, then the secondary question is from what category of marginalization did that originate? Um, mm. uh, I think women in the music side of the industry I don't know a woman musician who hasn't felt disrespected. Mm. You know what's funny? I, I only was recently remembering this. Before the Symphonietta started, and I was music directing all of the videos, doing concerts, Korean 42, 54, like stuff like that. Yeah. There was like a good year and a half, almost two years of work leading up to the pandemic when I only hired women musicians whenever I was music directing. Mm. It just was something that I did anyways because I felt more comfortable being surrounded by women. I had one experience where I was music directing and I'd been brought in to replace somebody. And it was like an all white male, much older than me band that I hadn't really had a say in, in hiring. And I'd never been made to feel by people I was working with so unqualified or I wasn't supposed to be there. And I would get comments and it's, it's impossible to do your work yeah. when you are also fielding that kind of like emotional anxiety. And after that, I just was like, I've never had a woman make me feel that way. Mm-hmm. And so even in like smaller hiring rhythm bands, concerts, I found the women r- rhythm players who made me feel safe on stage, made me feel like safe working. And obviously there are so many men who are not like that. Of course we acknowledge that. There's no, there's a 0% chance I'm going to deal with this when I'm surrounded by women. 
But the thing that actually has been a big part of my story that I've, I've felt very afraid to talk about for a long time, but I only recently, I, I've mentioned a little bit in press things recently, is I think that when unwanted romantic advancements Ooh, are made, yeah. in, even in a very small way Ooh, yeah. towards a woman, and they're not reciprocated for any reason, it, it doesn't even matter why. And then that woman is not hired or small offhanded remarks about her being difficult or not being fun to be around or whatever it is, get passed mm-hmm. around. When any sort of romantic advance, even just like an invitation for a date, romantic advances for men to women in the industry, if a woman doesn't reciprocate that advance, it has impacts on her career. I can't tell you how many times I've been afraid to not reciprocate something romantically to a man in the industry because you're, he's more experienced than me. He's in the line of people who would hire me. What if this person tells that person not to hire me? This person's working on this project, which I want to be on. And that person hears that this person doesn't like me. I'm screwed. Mm. And that line of thinking is like, we really have to add that to the list. <laughs> not reciprocating as a literally teenage <laughs> young professional in the city has actually followed me in my career for five to six years. Jeez. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I know I'm not the only one. Yeah. Thank you for sharing because you're not the only one, unfortunately. But the more we talk about it, the less alone others will feel in that and the less power that we'll have. Yeah. For people who are entering the industry right now, Mm -hmm. what would your advice to them be? Oh, it's so crazy because now that I'm giving you these interviews, when I get asked questions like that, I think of what my answer would have been like six years ago, and like two years ago. And <laughs> <laughs> so much has changed. My my constant advice that I have always believed in that has that has been really essential to my journey is to be very to be bold in authentically building relationships with people who aren't already in your network. The word networking has such gross connotation these days. Yeah. It's like it's not the same as it's not the same as sending a cold email blast and networking. It's it's being really bold and identifying who you admire who you want to work with, who you want to build a relationship with, and authentically building that relationship, even if it means reaching out cold at the onset. Yeah. All of the most impactful, valuable relationships that have, have led to the biggest opportunities in my career have come from a cold email introduction. The first Broadway show I worked on, I cold emailed the music supervisor who was coming over from London. And I didn't know him and he didn't know me. And we had almost no mutual friends. And I just said, I'm qualified for this. I'd love to meet up with you and show you that I'm qualified for this. I'm sure you have mutual friends and mutual friends who can do this job, but let me prove to you that I can do it too. Mm. I, I think being bold in reaching out to people, but doing it respectfully and authentically always. Mm. Um, the other thing is, I only really got to create something of my own because the pandemic pulled me out of this hamster wheel of just constantly working for other people, taking job after job after job to serve the visions of these bigger projects. I know it's easier said than done, but I would say, like, give yourself enough space to tune in with what you want to say to the world and what you want to, to give and what you want to do. It's how we find our purpose. That sounds really cheesy, but I, I think it would have taken me a long time without the pandemic before I would have even thought about that. Mm. Think about what you have to say that only you can say and what you want to create that really you are the person to create and trusting that you're the person who can create it too trusting in yourself that you are enough already to do that yeah that's such a big across the board like across the board the swing high right you know I I was like I need some money to do this thing and I can't give anyone a tax break or a return on their investment but let's just see what happens here and and I think um something that I do quite a bit is um 
imagining and sometimes even journaling paragraphs on paragraphs of mm. something that seems so big and daunting. I will pretend it's 10 years from now and the thing worked out in my favor and was wildly successful and write about what that feels like. Oh, that's so cool. Then you're feeling what it feels like. Then you're like, oh, wow, this really worked out. And then when you look back at the list of the, the steps needed to get there, it feels so small. The worst that happens is this person doesn't respond to me. So yeah. I think not being afraid of not being afraid of the actual fullest version of your dream. That sounds so cheesy. I feel like, a, I don't know. No, it's true though. I, it's, it's, it's never, it's not cliche if you're saying it based on experience, but yeah. also it's so true. One of my favorite professors, she said, everybody plans for failure and almost nobody plans for success. Mm-hmm. Everybody plans to send that cold email and they're already prepping for the yeah. no response. They're going to respond and say no yeah. or something. And then when you, sometimes when you get the yes, it's scarier because you're like, yeah. I didn't even, I didn't plan for the success. So yeah. I, yeah, it's a very true thing. I'm going to wrap it up with some fun speed questions. Okay. So the first speed question is, what are you watching right now? Succession. Oh, <gasps> same. Oh my God. Succession. I'm about to start my like 14th or 15th rewatch of Smash. walking stereotype I am I love smash so much second speed question is what are you reading right now life pass by Pyle Kadakia Pyle Kadakia is the founder of class pass actually she's a huge inspiration to me we met we were working together on monsoon wedding in New Delhi India where she was choreographing and I was working on the music team I met her there and learned as I followed her career that she's the founder of ClassPass, which is the, a, a billion dollar idea. Yeah. <laughs> and she just wrote a book and I bought it. I pre-ordered it and read it the day that it, it came out and I've, I've been reading it. And it's just one of the most extraordinary books on purpose and aligning mm-hmm. with your professional and, and creative and personal callings that I've ever read. And I recommend it to everyone. Ooh, I want to read that. What are you listening to right now? Like, what's your album on repeat or song? I'm going to pull up my Spotify and see what's there. <laughs> Everything Taylor's version. Always Taylor's version. <laughs> we only listen to Taylor's version here. Correct. So correct. What's your favorite Taylor Swift album? I have to know. Red. Literally same. <laughs> yeah. Red, but like, I didn't appreciate Reputation when it came out. And now I do. I know my best friend in the whole world, she's obsessed with reputations. And I was always like, I love you in spite of this. And then she made me listen to it enough times. And I was like, you're so right. You're so right. You know, I read reputation are my favorites and the, the, whichever one is on top is like totally depending on the day, depending on the mood. Reputation yeah. is a very specific mood. It's not for every day. A hundred percent. And sometimes I'm like, why do I feel off today? And I'm like, oh, because I haven't listened to folklore recently enough. And then I like go back to folklore. Right. Last speed question is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself one thing, what would it be? I would tell her, deep in your heart, you know exactly what it is that you love and exactly what it is that you want to do. And just because that hasn't been done before doesn't mean you won't do it. Mm. And doesn't mean that you're not capable of doing it. And doesn't mean that you aren't capable of doing it on like a really grand scale. 
And that's a wrap on the first ever episode of New to the Table. Thank you so much, Macy Schmidt, for your time and for sharing your story with us. It means everything. If you want to support Macy, you could go to www.macyschmidtmusic.com, go on her website, learn even more about her, shoot her an email, tell her how awesome she is. Or if you want to follow her on Instagram, you could find her handle at Macy J. Schmidt. If you want to read this piece, we have it transcribed on our website at www.sheeshorses.co. And if you want to follow us on the gram, you can find us at she sources with an underscore thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode of new to the table bye